Welcome to What's Left, the weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca, the co-host, teacher at Socialist Andy Lipson, a uh, community organizer Socialist Kinsipeda, and writing teacher Jessica. Uh, we are online at what-s-left.webnote.com. Uh, you can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode where you found this episode. Thank you. So... Today's topic, uh, we will be discussing the Sino or the China and Russian alliance uh, after their historic uh, meeting in, Be- in Beijing right, for the Olympic Winter Olympics and, uh, and the implications of it, as well as just how much of this is related to the Ukraine war or the war in Ukraine, right? And, um, and the call for, you know, U.S. efforts to minimize that, that alliance. And, Andy, you had come up with a topic. Uh, you had us. You emailed something for us to read. So maybe you can start off the, this this um, the episode and then have us share our initial reactions to this pact. Yeah. Um, so I will probably try to find a link for this thing that people can get to. Um, the 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 link that I sent you all was a I guess a, a link from Russia, which now people are having trouble getting to. Um, but it's basically the title of it is a joint statement of the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China on the international relations entering a new era and the global and the global sustainable and the global sustainable development. Um, and I saw it actually mentioned on the Hill. Uh, Kim Iverson was, did like her her editorial about it, and and I think she had the right understanding of, at least of the document that it was a document of collaboration of real intent and even a, a much more sincere collaboration, establishing collaboration between Russia and China. Um, and uh, the, the other people on the on the thing, show did not seem to understand, in my opinion, the importance of the document. Um, and, uh, and there's a few things that have come up. Like first, um, you know, like when I, I do wanna say like, cause I had you, you, I sent two documents to both of you. I sent you this, and I sent you the, nas- the national stra- strategy. What's that? What's that damn thing called? Um, national defense strategy. The national defense strategy from 2018. Um, and because this, to me, is the answer of Russia and China to the national defense strategy put out by the United States in 2018. And I think there's a reason why it took them so long to do it. Um, and uh, there was an article in Daily Mail today that was talking about uh, how, because there's been this, this question in the, in the mainstream press of like, is China gonna take, take Russia's side? Are they gonna see reason and come and go with the West? And I always thought that was like, that's crazy. Like they're even saying that because there's no way China's gonna take NATO or US's side on this because they know what the US is about. Um, but uh, they came out today or in the last few days where decisively, Russia or China has said, no, we're not. We think the problem here is NATO. We don't think the problem here is Russia. We think the problem here is NATO. And they're, they're the ones who have been uh, stoking the, the, the violence and the, and the aggression. And, and Russia has the right to its own security, right? Um, and while still trying to play, a, a, China's still trying to play a game of like arbiter. And I'll, I'll even talk about what I think is going on there. Um, but um, so this is what the Daily Mail said about this. They said, once bitter Cold War rivals, they're talking about China and Russia, China and Russia have moved closer than ever since President Xi, Xi, 
Xi Jinping took power nearly a decade ago, driven by their shared desire to confront U.S. power. And that is a very interesting way of putting that, because in 2018, like I've said over and over again on so many different episodes, the U.S. essentially declared war on both of these two. Um, and that's what's in the national strategy document, basically saying the war on terror is over. And from here on in, all our military, our, the, the thrust of our military is going to be towards taking on China and taking on Russia, what they described as the revisionist powers. And China and Russia haven't said anything about that, but now they are saying something about that. Um, and I think it's very interesting. And I think it also speaks to this notion, and I'll, I'll have to say, I saw a Corbett report thing about this document that I thought was completely really off the mark in terms of how it assessed it, because it, it, it assessed it as like, look at these globalists all trying to do the same thing. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. What this shows is the world is being divided. And that's, that's how imperialism works. And the language of these people is not about globalism. The language of these people is the language of empire building. And that's what is so clear in this document for me, is that they are using US language to say, this is China now, in my opinion, to say, we're prepared to take over the mantle that the US had after World War II, and we can run this fucking show better. Not less violent, not less lying, but just we'll do a better job of it. And that's interesting to me. Um, so that's what I, that's my initial take on some of the elements of this document. Um, and uh, I wanted you all to read it because I also know that there's, I mean, I'm not, you know, questions about competitive world versus collaborative world at the top, you know, new world order kind of stuff. And I wanted to see what you made of this document because what I see in it, a world being split in two um, and being, and, and preparing for brutal conflict. <laughs> um, and I wanted to see if other people saw other things. Um, so that's my opening statements, I guess, about it. Yeah, it was really interesting reading these side by side, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, with regard to the China-Russia piece, I mean, the majority of the document, to me, you know, it was all advocating for a multipolar world. It was advocating for cooperation, um, you know, like multinational development, you know, allegedly for the purpose of helping people reducing poverty, right? Like um, things that we want, food security, some other stuff, right? A lot of, a lot of mention of COVID-19. It came up quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there was definitely moments for me and I, I haven't listened to the, the Corbett piece on this. So I'll have to check it out, but there were definitely moments where the kind of globalist stuff, you know, I felt myself, you know, a little, little triggered, right. You know, um, mentions of like sustainable development goals and a lot of this, but I think you're right in the sense that they, in a lot of places, they really kind of take like U.S. democratic, oops, slammed my arm into my table, um, like they take uh, the language of U.S. democracy and kind of, um, you know, like they'll put it in quotation marks, maybe we can look at some examples, but kind of um, turning it against the West, right, in really accurate ways, right, talking about how democracy is is not a particularly American thing, if an American thing at all, right? Like it's an international goal. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I thought it, I thought it was interesting. There's definitely a couple like more specific things that I I definitely want to bring up, but my, yeah, my sense of it, especially reading it as kind of a response, as you described it in your framing, Andy. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the total opposite of the defense piece, which was all like unilateral, um, you know, just same old, same old stuff. There was even, you know, there was a line in the national defense strategy where they literally say, we will not seek, um, uh, we will not seek to impose our way of life by force. And yet the entire document is about exactly that, like imposing our way of life by force and specifically calling out Russia and China in particular again and again and again, um, you know, and every critique uh, is just so backwards because every critique, you know, whether it's nuclear energy or trying to wage economic warfare through sanctions or control international trade, like U.S. is guilty of every single one of those critiques. So, yeah, I mean, to me, like, especially by contrast, like it read, at least on the surface level, as a much better plan for geopolitics moving forward um yeah like i said at, at the surface level i think so yeah i also had difficulties uh, putting it up again i read it a while back but uh i read the uh, national defense strategy today so it reminded me of that document you know the joint statement uh because at least to me it, it, it's a uh, it's a page out of the U.S. playbook. Uh, basically, like, uh, you know, the joint statement calls out the U.S. straight up <laughs> while masking their own intentions. Um, because, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, uh, Jessica, that, you know, they're talking about multipolar world. They call out the U.S.'s uh, use of force and violence to affect change in the world. And, um, and so... You know, I think the, the most of the world knows, knows this. You know, that the U.S. is brutal. The U.S. will get their way, and I, I do think that it is a sort of statement. It, it's kind of bold, I think, to me, in the sense of um, they're saying, like, you know what, Th- that time is over. It's it's like a, 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 that time, you know, the U.S. hegemony over the world, unchallenged hegemony, is over. And us too, you know, we're going to make sure that, you know, that world is no more. And then I find it so curious that it came about a month before Ukraine, you know, and and, and so, you know, this is what they display to the world, right? But they know they have in the background, they know what they're doing. They know their plans. They know their strategy. This is a strategy that they want us to see. They want us to consume. Um, But... You know, I, I personally, I, I don't, like, it, it, it proves what we've been saying, at least to me. Obviously, I'm biased because Lipson and I see the world, that, you know, in that sense, at least of these are thugs, these are mobsters, all these ruling classes. We're not picking Russia or China or the U.S. They're all comp- competing. That's the, that's the order of the world under capitalism. And, and cooperation is an illusion, and it will break down. Um, especially when uh, there the thugs want to feast, you know. I was actually thinking of these moments 
in terms of um, a mobster movie. When, when, when the small mobsters see the big boss about to go down and, and feel the winds of change, you know, they make their move, you know, to, to take more power. And I think I think this actually relates a bit to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, you know, because that was a defeat. You know, I know there are some people that listen to us and are suspicious as, you know, the U.S., um, you know, they're plotting something. And I think it was a defeat. You know, they, they didn't, um, they don't, you know, and so NATO was retreating and now NATO also has to have a new function. And I do think the U.S. is making moves. NATO is making moves. Uh, they forced the hand of Russia to an extent, but you know, the, Russia and China feel secure enough to make that Ukraine move. And, and, and now throw into this uh, conversation, the, another wrench or another uh, more spice into this conflict at Saudi Arabia. You know, over the last week, Saudi Arabia, you know, and has uh, publicly considered taking the Chinese currency as a method of payment over past, bypassing the, the US dollar. That's a massive, bold move that challenges the US he economic hegemony in the world. It may not pan out immediately, but again, there's even articles now coming out. I read one from the Dallas News talking about uh, the, they're using the language of the, the US security states to talk about this moment that I think, uh, the triage of oil, something like, like that, right? Like the troika of evil or the, you know, they, they have phrases to talk about, you know, Iran, to talk about Venezuela, Cuba, uh, North Korea. And so th this article that I was reading was talking about how the U.S. needs to break down this alliance of Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China. And of course it's about petroleum, but it's, it's about <laughs> markets, it's about, you know, uh, uh, the uh, world currency, it's about trade, it's about military uh, in a military alliance as well. Because these are superpowers, you know, the, the, the US would really have to consider, you know, if they wanted to take on one of these head on. Because, you know, um, in Saudi Arabia too, like they're not dumb. Like we, we paint them as, you know, like these backwards people in, in the media, but long story short, my impression is that this is a declaration of war. And if you really go back to that 2018 um, uh, defense strategy thing, you also see there the last two years of COVID, why it is so important, what we've been saying, you know, that they're talking about biotechnology, artificial intelligence, big data analytics. This is the U.S., you know, uh, defense uh, strategy, right? Like they stated it publicly in relation to China and Russia and Iran. And everyone, they, 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 they did focus on China and Russia, but they also named all the other people that have been shoved in our mat on their, under our throats in the last five, six, 10 years, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, all these you know, evil people, the Islamic State that they've used to advance the imperial project in this. So again, these two statements um, are absolutely a declaration of war. And I do see like Lipson, a partition of the world happening now. And this is the, uh, precursor to World War III in my mind. Well, the Saudi Arabia thing, I, that was on my, also on my radar, something I saw. Just to comment on, to expand, to piggyback on what Kenny was saying, I, I was uh, listening to Alfred McCoy, who is a professor in history, and I'm hoping to share a clip later on in this episode. And 
you know, the, it really is something um, he talks about that professor talks about um, world hegemonies, really um, the rise and fall of it. He's a historian and he says that we are at a time in a pivotal time right now that we are witnessing. And the 4th of February is that historic period or that, that is date that is shift that we, we should, will always remember because uh, uh, ever since then, since that agreement, um, there have been conversations and it's how uh, the, the dollar really is a marker for how you're going to be, what uh, position you are in the world. And now that Saudi Arabia is doing that, announcing that their petroleum transactions are, would be changing from dollars now to the yuan, that is now a sign that you know that we're going to be changing. And it's 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 doing oil business in dollars, and that means that the dollar has continued support of the global reserve currency. But it's going to change in the future. It's going to be a part of um, China now, right? Um, why wouldn't it be? This is Cold War 2.0. Right. Uh, there is, um, well, cold, first of all, Cold War is the term coined, or I don't know if it was coined, but it was used first time by um, George Orwell. Right. It was in an article that he published in 1945. And it was, as I'll read here, an article published that he referred to predicted that would be a nuclear statement between two or three monstrous super states, each possessed of a weapon by which millions of people can be wiped out in, few, in a few seconds. So this is what. Um, I think we're really looking at the next coming years will look like is we're going to be in this um, conflictive zone between the world powers. Um, this, oh, right. This is at the heels of, you know, uh, the president Biden calling China on Friday, um, that two hour, allegedly two hour conversation, right? and trying to dissuade China from aligning themselves with Russia. Uh, and now this week, um, visiting Europe, starting, I think, in Poland. I'm not sure exactly where, but this is what, that's what's going to happen. So it's all of um, the, the decline of the, the, the power, the U.S. power that we're seeing. And uh, I can say more about it later. I just also wanted to... Um, say that this is not the first time there was a, an agreement or a treaty between uh, Beijing and Moscow. There have been also previous agreements. Uh, there is the Treaty of Friendship of 2001, which we, um, um, which just shows, right, that like there has been this ongoing conversation that's been going on. And once we look at Alfred McCoy, I'll get this historian that I'll share, <clears throat> um, he argues that it takes uh, a plague or a war for this tectonic shift. And whether the plague, whether COVID was um, manufactured or it happened naturally, whatever it was, whatever theoretically um, people want to assume how it happened, it's been COVID and now the, the Ukrainian war, right? <clears throat> that have been um, sort of propelled this, this tectonic shift that we are seeing now. Uh, and I think that uh, um, this is going to be a shift in, as we have seen in that agreement, um, beyond security, this is going to be a collaboration on space, climate change, the internet, and artificial intelligence, if you look at that agreement. And um, this is going to be, as the document claims, 
uh, a change in the way that we see democracy, right? And uh, as we move away from um, seeing the center of the world, which is the USA at this moment, to now seeing how uh, Asia and Russia are going to be dominating our culture and uh, the way that we view um, whatever democracy is, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying we have democracy, but and that is going to be, because they say it right there, they claim that no one size fits all type of democracy. Um, so I, I do see that there's going to be a shift in the way that we think about the way um, governments work. Um, uh, so, and then it, it shows, right, if we continue the agreement, it shows elaborate um, show of solidarity than any time in the past. And they have a pledge to stand shoulder to shoulder against the USA and the West, ideologically as well as militarily. And uh, I'm, yeah, so, I mean, these are thoughts, the initial thoughts, right? So I'm concerned. Um, I'm actually quite esteemed. I'm just very, I'm glad you brought it up Andy, because it really makes me nervous. I did some reading today and it really is now, um, I can't believe we're in the start in the very, just when this is history, this year is the start of this tectonic shift. And again, once we listen to Alfred McCoy, I'm going to share a clip of him. Uh, he is predicting that there's going to, um, the USA is going to be eclipsed by uh, Eurasia uh, by 2030. And uh, China will be the rise of power by 2050. I mean, these are uh, interesting predictions that he is making, and I want to share that, right? Uh, but why wouldn't it be? I mean, if we see how uh, after World War II, there was the Marshall Plan, right, um, to create infrastructure across Europe to try to get it more um, economically boosted and as well as to get the Industrial Revolution going. I think it was the third Industrial Revolution going. And now we're seeing how China is placing itself as that center, as it's, I forget what they call it, but the uh, alliance of all uh, the uh, Africa and Asia alliance in creating that uh, infrastructure that was once done by the US empire um, after World War II. So if we just look at history, we can map it onto the, this future and we can see how there is this shift. And why wouldn't it be, right? I mean, I think it's 70% uh, landmass of, yeah, of um, Asia is ruled by uh, China, right? And, uh, and it's, it's huge. So we're going to be moving away now um, from this, the center, you know? <clears throat> yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned the part of the document that I was didn't want to ignore, which was the AI, mm -hmm. the internet, the internet, the collaboration on the data collection that is being put forward by Russia and China, like openly, like we're going to be competing. We're, we're going to be, we're, we're going to be collaborating on building artificial intelligence and data collection systems that will defeat you. That's what they're, I mean, and, and we're going to be working with our partners, the Shanghai, the Shanghai pact, um, ASEAN, uh, uh, the American Southeast Asian uh, committees, APEC. Some of those organizations have the United States in them, but the Shanghai Pact, which is essentially like Asian NATO, U.S. tried to get into that Shanghai Pact back in 2005, and they said, "Fuck you! You're invading one of our one of our group members of of the Shanghai Pact. You're not allowed to be even a, even an observer into it." And now they're putting forward the Shanghai Pact. Uh, I can't remember what their name was for. I think it was the Shanghai Cooperative or Organization as the framework for really the new order 
Um, and the new order is the same language and buzzwords that the U.S. has put forward to establish that its order is going to rule. And that's what, what Jessica was mentioning. I, I do want to actually read it out because it's quite remarkable how similar they sound when they put forward, when, when China puts forward its plan for running a wonderful world, how much it sounds like the U.S. And I think the NWO people think, oh, they must be collaborating. Idiots, they're not collaborating. They're using the same lie language to say, we're going to run this show. Okay, um, so here's here's what they say, right? Um, and this is China, uh, in, in China and Russia. In order to accelerate the implementation of the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, the sides call on the international community to take practical steps in the key areas of cooperation, such as poverty reduction, food security, vaccines, epidemic control, financing for development, climate change, sustainable development, including green development, industrialization, digital economy, and infrastructure connectivity. Like, that's not, this is not serious. These people are basically saying, we will rule the world. We're taking this world from the United States. And that's why it was important for them to say, we are, we are the ones who are going to reestablish the post-World War II order. That's where you start to see what this, what this is really about. The post-World War II order is the heyday of capitalist democracy. It's when money was, it was the recovery from all that, the establishment of Western democracies. Uh, of course, even after World War II, there was the establishment of so-called communist China, which in my opinion was never communist and certainly not today. Um, but what they mean though, is that order of, of, West, of democracy spreading that is threatened now. This is what China is implying. That is threatened now by an aggressive uh, state that only considers its own interests. So what they're essentially saying is, we are the new allies and the Axis powers of the United States. They're the threat to. They're the threat to the global security. They're the threat to democracy. They're not saying a new kind of democracy. They're saying the same old, same old democracy that everyone calls dictatorship because it is dictatorship. It just when when. When China does its democracy, the U.S. calls it dictatorship. When U.S. does its democracy, China calls it authoritarian. And they're both right because they're all dictatorships. All of them are veneers of, of, of things that are good for people when both of them are committed to smashing their own working classes, accumulating profits from them, and using the surplus value of, that, of those profits to, to rebuild their engines of, of, of competition and war and try to win. So that's what I see. That's what to me is, is so striking in this. Um, and it is, I will also cite one other part that was interesting to me about, um, oh, and when Jessica, you mentioned the idea of one of these sounds like one of these might be a better plan. I will say I, these are both the same plans. Um, it's just that I would say that China is trying to say to the rest of the world, the U.S. is going to lose this one. We've already got our inroads into Africa. We've already built our inroads into, 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 into Europe. We're where the money is. The, the Belt and Road Initiative is where investment dollars are, not the U.S. So if you want to be on the winning team, come over to our side. That's really what this thing is, is trying to say to everyone else on the globe. Um, and there was, I, I just want to cite one part from the national security document because it did highlight to me something interesting that indicates the U.S. strategy in Ukraine. Um, and they said this in their document. Um, this is in the 2018 document. Um, so they were talking about how they were going to be, the U.S. is talking about how they're going to be successful in, in challenging China and Russia. 
And they said, we're going to have to be strategically predictable, but operationally unpredictable. And they go say this, defeating or deterring or defeating long-term strategic competitors is a fundamentally different challenge than the regional adversaries that were the focus of previous strategies. Our strength and integrated actions with allies will demonstrate our commitment to deterring aggression, but our dynamic force employment, military posture, and operations must introduce unpredictability to adversary decision makers. With our allies and partners, we will challenge competitors by maneuvering them into unfavorable positions, frustrating their efforts, precluding their options while expanding our own, and forcing them to confront conflict under adverse conditions. That's what I think the U.S. strategy is here in Ukraine. It's forcing, they, they knew they were going to be fighting two wars. They can't fight them at the same time. They don't want to make the mistake that Germany made. Okay, we're going to fight, we're, we're going to fight the Soviet forces on one side. We're going to fight Britain and the, the other forces on the other side. They don't want to fight two wars at once, so they have to fight them one at a time. And I believe that the, the, the Ukraine strategy was a strategy and, and the U.S. strategy to draw Russia into Ukraine and force their hand by pushing NATO into Ukraine was one to try to bring this, bring this conflict on so they could bleed Russia in a, in a, in a, in a dirty war, essentially, where the U.S. used to get to use javelin missiles and stinger missiles and all that kind of stuff, pumping, miss, pumping weapons in there to see if they can weaken one of their competitors. Um, there's a risk with it because it has pushed them decisively into, into the China's arms now. And I think China knows that and Russia knows that because clearly Russia is the junior partner to this alliance. But, um, but I do think there, there is not, the, the US is not mad and not crazy when they're doing what they're doing. They're doing exactly that, being unpredict operationally unpredictable and trying to draw their enemies into, into making mistakes that they can make them pay for. I do wonder, you know, what kind of moves are going to happen after this, right? Like the Ukraine situation, because, you know, there are people like we've had at this show that make the new world order type of argument, right? Like the, there is this overarching power structure that dictates everything in the world. And, you know, and we, I guess, say essentially that these are all mobsters representing their own ruling class. And they have to, and they have to go to war. Eventually, you know, it devolves into that um, World War One, World War Two. What's about that, you know? And and so again, there is an, the argument that pe that these countries have economic ties, right? That's a for me, it's like a uh, like the globalization argument, right? Like that more economic ties is going to deter people from going to war. But you know, China itself is undergoing a uh, a change in strategy, right? Of because they are going to have to switch from the factory of the world, and this is what they're getting into into Africa, because Africa will be the factory of the world. Well, the Chinese, uh, you know, ruling the world like the U.S., right? Controlling the financial markets of the world, they're going to be able to have their own consumers. They don't have to sell to the rest of the world. They have plenty of people to sell to as long as they lift them. So there is going to be a change, you know. And so that argument to me is going to fade out, you know, you know, soon. I guess it will take time. But this idea that you know China will forever want to be the factory of the world, it, 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 it's it's going to go overboard, you know. And so you will see changes. You know, this this is earth shattering. What's happening, you know? And this is why it throws Saudi Arabia in there. Because that's a massive, it's not a small thing. All these moves are massive and, 
And again, I call it a partition. It reminds me of Africa, you know, when like like the imperial European powers were dividing and, and sorting what belongs to whom, except this is not happening in that way, you know. Um, and so alliances are being forged. And, and, and so everyone else, like Ukraine, will see two giants fighting each other and like will be rolled over basically uh, because of their fights. Um, and so um, when I hear, you know, Ukraine, when I hear Cold War too, right? Like it's, there is this assumption that the Cold War was not violent. It was just tension. I think it's implied when we say Cold War, but there was plenty of blood shed, you know, during the Cold War. It was a lot of proxy wars that, you know, in, in where a lot of people died, especially in the global south. Uh, and so I don't, I think there will be an element of that, but inevitably, you know, I actually have a clip that I want to show you, uh, if that's okay, can I, can I share? Yeah, I think, I'll, let me see if I make you share the screen, hold on. All that, if you look at history, could this happen? Well, yeah, we have seen other dominant currencies in the past, right? What the, the Dutch uh, currency in the 17th, 18th century, the Spanish dollar, then you had sterling, then you had the US dollar. It could happen. It seems that the conversations are there, but perhaps not yet. Yeah, Talk it, to it, us took, about it the, took like world wars for that. To right, change. World War One. Oh, then okay. we had Bretton Woods in 1944. So you be careful with that comment, Romain. Yeah. So again, the, at the beginning, I guess a little context. They were talking about the replacement of the U.S. dollar, right? That's the what's in the news. You also got to be careful because at some point they always grab any topic like climate change or anything and it will make it work for the ends of, you know, the U.S. really class. But I do think that's important that, you know, there, there is a challenge that's going to come to to take power from the U.S. And, and, and I agree that, you know, Eduardo, like you were saying that the person you referenced, that there has to be an earth shattering moment. I don't think it was COVID. I don't think it has happened. I think there will be a head on conflict. And just like, you, Lipson, you mentioned before, took two world wars for the, uh, the uh, British Empire <laughs> to recede to the background. It's going to take massive conflict, head-on conflict, to take power from the U.S. Because U.S., they stated it on the national defense uh, thing, we will win. They stated multiple times, we are ready to win. They're ready to do anything, including modernizing, um, modernizing nuclear weapons. You know, and, and so this is what we, we, we warn about. Like, you know, we've also, I think, are detached from the Cold War era, right? Like the nuclear war is, is like a thing of the past. It's always been on the table. It's been present in, in COVID because we've been fixated on COVID. We think like all this maneuvering has stopped. Even us, we were distracted into fully COVID. But this political, geopolitical maneuvering has not stopped. Even the vaccines themselves demonstrate this Geopolitical, geopolitical wrestling for controlling the world. You know, just look at what places you can enter with the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine where you can't. Mm -hmm. So I, all this COVID, all this data mining, all this uh, mRNA bullshit, all this is in the context of these people gearing up for war. Yeah, I wanted to look maybe at one of the sections on nuclear energy and nuclear warfare. Um, so I'm trying to think there's a bunch, but I guess, okay, I'll just read one paragraph 
from this is from the joint statement. So the sides welcome the joint statement of the leaders of the five nuclear weapons states on preventing nuclear war and avoiding arms races and believe that all nuclear weapons states should abandon the Cold War mentality and zero-sum games, reduce the role of nuclear weapons in their national security policies, withdraw nuclear weapons deployed abroad, eliminate the unrestricted development of global anti-ballistic missile defense system, and take effective steps to reduce the risks of nuclear wars in any armed conflicts between countries with military nuclear capabilities. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think when I read that, right? Because, I mean, obviously, my position is abolish nuclear weapons altogether. But I think there's a lot of arguments going on, you know, just in general, with regard to to what degree, like Putin has been provoked in this Ukrainian situation. Um, but it, you know, it's like all this, all this language um, about reducing risk and de-escalating and withdrawing, particularly with regard to the nuclear threat. And yet, like, everything's going the complete opposite direction. Um, so I think, I mean, that's obviously, like, the most scary part of of all of this and, and the prospect of World War III or, like, whatever form, you know, that that's taking. Um, and then alongside this, I don't know if we want to get into this because we've had a couple a couple conversations about Ukraine and we haven't, I don't think touched on the bio lab thing at all. And I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading, um, uh, the part in this, in the joint statement where they specifically call out like us, uh, use of bioweapons. Right. Um, so the sides reaffirm their belief that the convention on the prohibition of the development of production and stock, of bacteriological, biological, and toxic weapons, uh, and on their destruction, a really long name, um, is an essential pillar of international peace and security. Uh, Russia and China underscore their determination to preserve the credibility and effectiveness of the convention. And then later on, the sides emphasize that domestic and foreign bioweapons activities by the United States and its allies raise serious concerns and questions for the international community regarding their compliance with the BWC. Um, then they talk a little bit about like properly reporting on military biological activities conducted overseas, overseas and on their national territory. So like immediately I was thinking about all of the questions around like Fort Detrick. Um, anyway, I just think that that, that section, obviously, you know, um, given the last two years, like there's a lot of emphasis on bio warfare in particular, like alongside cyber warfare. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what do you guys make of of the whole um, U.S. funded Ukrainian bio labs? Like, how do you see that fitting into this whole conflict? I want to take on two because there's two questions you mentioned about the nuclear part and the biological part. And in both cases, the Chinese um, Russian agreement puts forward the notion that they are a more peaceful, a more sane alternative. Like look, we don't want nuclear weapons. And we've already given up our bioweapons, right? That's that's what's kind of implied. And if this U.S. is running mad across the globe with nuclear weapons and bioweapons, which is true. But I will say two things about, I'm going to say one thing about the bioweapons and one thing about the nuclear part in terms of what it means when China and Russia are saying it. First, complete hypocrisy when they talk about bioweapons. Sputnik, Sinovac, 
all that stuff, mRNA vaccines, adenovirus viral vectors, all of that stuff is the infrastructure for biotech and bioweapons of the future. They all know it. They're all doing it. And it's a race to see who can develop CRISPR, who can develop all those sorts of things. And it's connected to AI because AI, they believe, is going to be a key feature towards really helping them develop the kinds of technologies in biotech that would be transformative and allow you to, to win, possibly using with bioweapons. So let me just say that when they say U.S. must disarm, they're being completely hypocritical because they know they're doing exactly the same thing. They're just trying to they're just trying to get any of their allies to put the same kind of pressure the U.S. is trying to put on China because U.S. is doing the same thing. Bring down that Wuhan lab. Da, 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 da. They're trying to get them to say, please let us bring our, our the people who need to look into these labs to see if they're running. China's like, fuck you. No way. Because <laughs> we're running a lab like you, like you are in, in North Carolina. Right. So they all know they're doing it. So everyone's got their hands dirty in China, Russia and and, and the United States. And it's a race to see who can inject their people and learn from it and build the right weapons to rule the world. In the case of nuclear weapons, I think it's different. I think China knows, like they're like Germany was uh, in World War II, prior to World War II. We've got an economic engine that, that is just going to win this one. And the only thing that could short circuit China taking over the globe economically is the U.S. tilting over the entire board with the nuclear weapons. So in reality, I think China is basically building any pressure they can to get the U.S. to 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 reduce, which it won't, but to reduce the one thing that it's going to allow the U.S. to, well, what I would say, survive this, meaning the U.S. is going to lose this, I believe, in terms of a straight up conflict. And the only alternative for them is to use the nukes to try to change the game. And China knows that. So um, I think China is talking out of an immense conflict. Con confidence economically, politically. Um, and so the one thing that could make it, that could overturn all this is the U.S. Um, using nuclear weapons. And that I do believe that's where, where this is going to go. And I do believe the U.S. will lose. And I believe they will bomb cities when they are losing. And we, we've already done it At, in, in the last stages of victory, just to basically tell Russia, you know, stay out of our, out of our back. That was not about Japan. That was about sending a message to Russia when they nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If they're willing to send a message in, in, the, in the face of victory, what do you think our rulers are going to do when they're losing? And, and I think that's also a lesson for China and Russia, or at least China, because China is the big player. That if you want to win, you will have to, you know, like do some horrible shit, you know, in order to assert your power. And China is not at that level, you know, to compete with the U.S. And I think that's where Russia comes in. And, and you know, and I also don't want to make it seem like that alliance is going to last either, because China is building their own military, their own, you know, they're just buying time. They just want a buddy for now, because like, um, you know, I mentioned this the first time we talked about Ukraine, but I still think this is also about, you know, that alliance is about those northern routes that are going to, uh, you know, shrink the world a bit in order for trade and, and things like that, you know, as more ice melts or, you know, some part longer. And Russia has a lot of, you know, that area, like, you know, and they actually have a lot of experience operating in fucking the cold and, and defending those areas. And, and so, again, I, I don't, I, again, I'm focusing on the near present, I guess, I don't know how many years, but I also... I'm not fooled by that alliance that that's going to last or, you know, if it just like 
fucking like the Soviets in the U.S. right fought the Nazis, and then what happened? Right. I mean, that's what I was noted. They call themselves the sides. They don't mean the same sides. They mean different sides. So even in the document, they're acknowledging we're only temporary allies here. I was going to add that that confidence that they have, um, Moscow and Beijing comes from the geopolitics of Eurasia, right? It, it's that, that that's on their side. And I made a mistake. I said 70% of land mass. I meant to say 70% of the world's population is in that area. That's what I meant to say. I apologize. Uh, correction. And, uh, and this is, you know, as well, um, Ukraine is to Russia as Taiwan is to China, right? And this is becoming to, they're becoming um, um, fed up with US trying to, the USA trying to meddle in what their their own ambitions are, right? Um, For the USA to uh, funnel uh, military support to Taiwan to protect its so-called sovereignty and independence, right? Or trying to do the same with Ukraine when all of these things are really uh, an expansion either way, whether it be uh, Russia and China or whether the U.S. does it with, they did it a long time ago with Mexico, right, and other countries right around them. So, uh, or now externally through NATO, right, as they dominate um, Europe. So uh, it just, it's emerging as a new centers of global power on this planet. And I think that this is the boldness and the resistance to Washington. And that pressure is marked this year. Um, So, it's something to look at. And um, I wanted to say some other thing to what someone else's point was. It'll come to me when it comes. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think it was a short piece of the of this, the Chinese-Russian agreement, but it, it was pretty like uh, affirmed from the Russian side, reaffirms its support for the one China principle, confirms that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China, and opposes any form of independence of Taiwan. It's like, why the hell should Russia care about that? It's clearly, these are deals being struck. It's so, uh, I mean, it's just like, it really is the language of gangsters. Because basically they're saying, you know, we are, we're going into Ukraine and we're going to crack heads. Um, and China's going to do the same thing in Taiwan. And we're both going to support each other and give each other political cover for doing so. Uh, now, at this point, some people are going to lose their minds and think like, you know, that we're, that. Uh, you know, we're saying, oh, look, look how evil China and Russia is in the United. There are no side like and this is the, the mistake the left makes. The left makes the mistake of thinking that the China and Russia can be a bulwark against U.S. empire. It's like none. None of these sides are on our side. There is no working class side in any of these people, China, Russia or or the United States. They're all opposed to us and their operations are going to come at all of our expense. It's really, you can really see it in Ukraine, but of course you can see it, what's happening in the economy here in the United States. You can see it, what's going to happen in the economy in Russia. And you can see it in the dangerous future they have laid out for all of us. Um, so there are no sides to choose from here. That, that, that It has to be stopped. It's just, it turns out that our job, I believe in the United States, is to stop our government side. Um, and it's the job of the Chinese working class to stop them. And it's the job of the Russian working class to stop the Russians. Um, but it's, uh, well, I don't know. That was just interesting to me, that one China thing. Yeah, but both of these just reminded me why states are just so awful. 
<laughs> all states, all yeah. sides. Um, I had a comment, but Eduardo, did you want to go first? Well, I wanted to share now the the actual clip, but yeah. you can, or did you want no, to make do it? it? Mine was like a bit of a pivot, so go for it. Sure. It, well, it's the prediction by this professor, and uh, maybe we might even agree to it or not. I don't know whatever we thought of it. So I'm wondering if I can share. Yeah, you should be able to share. This, this element that permeates the fabric of whole civilizations, world orders, determine often the languages people speak, the religions that they practice, the way they work, the laws they follow, and even the games they play. And they are pervasive and they can outlast the empires that created them. And thus this deeply rooted form of global governance called world order um, uh, requires a major cataclysm, a coincidence between some geopolitical change and some catastrophe to uproot them and to give way to a new world order. And right now, we are at the cusp of such a change. And that's what I want to talk about in the prepared remarks I have tonight. So, Annika, with that, should I just launch right into my prepared remarks? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, thank you. Right, um, when the leaders of over 100 nations gathered at Glasgow for the UN Climate Conference last month, there was much discussion about the disastrous effect of global warming on the environment. But there was little discussion and less awareness of the possible political impact, particularly on the current world order that made such international gatherings possible. World orders, as I said earlier, are deeply rooted global systems that structure relations among nations and the conditions of life for the millions of people that live within them. And for the past 600 years, it has taken a catastrophic event, such as war or plague, to overturn such entrenched global systems. Within a decade, however, climate change will be wreaking a cumulative devastation sufficient to surpass past catastrophes creating conditions for the eclipse of Washington's liberal world order and for the rise of Beijing's decidedly illiberal one. In this sweeping imperial transition, global warming is catalyzing a veritable witch's brew of change that is eroding America's once unchallenged hegemony and its world system. By charting the course of climate change, we can draw something akin to a political roadmap for the rest of this tempestuous 21st century. Starting with the end of US global hegemony around the year 2030, the end of this decade, through Beijing's rather brief world leadership until something like 2050, all the way to this century's closing decades of environmental crisis, which yet may yet produce a new kind of empowered world order to mitigate, to cope with this global disaster. So I. I just have questions around that because he's talking about how there is a tie to climate change and all of this, right? Let me stop here. I'm not going to say anything because I'll fucking freak out. Yeah, I don't know. I could go a lot of directions after that video, but I don't think even say in the statement like, oh, like we don't support whatever interventionism and a bunch of other stuff, like under the guise of green solutions or under the guise of 
climate change and yet you know there's so much crap throughout the whole thing uh doing the exact exact same thing like just financialization of nature like you know full-on fourth industrial revolution there was one line that really got me um (laughs) harder than the other ones so they say uh the side strongly support bunch of stuff, blah, 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 and intend to jointly promote the harmonious development of humankind and nature, as well as green transformation to ensure sustainable global development. Um, I don't know what the fuck the development of nature means, right? I mean, I do. It just means financializing everything. I was thinking a lot to both of these, actually, reading both of these pieces um about Africa and the role you know not just with trade but just in terms of the importance of that population it's a growing population it's a young population and then also in terms of natural resources um there's so much you know so so much um competition and just desire to control in in a way that maybe like less you know, we've talked about how it's sort of the same patterns, but they're taking different forms, right? With the onset of uh, increasing technologization and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's also like really old school imperialism in in that regard. Um, I think there's also, you know, something to be said for like African leaders um, trying to develop their own sovereign nations by you know, partnering, getting their oil from whoever they want, right? Um, but, you know, looking at this statement, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, there's just so, so much here, like so much like sustainable development language. And so, yeah, going back to the, the video you shared, Eduardo, I think so much of this really, really, really shitty stuff is going to be done under the like under the name of like green development, like it's an oxymoron. You can't, you know, you can't have green development. You can't have like green industry. It's just not, it doesn't exist. It's a lie. I was wondering why I wanted to strangle that guy while I was listening to him. Um, And it's because it's the same, what he's doing is the same idiotic mistake that the entire left made over COVID thinking that, the discussion was about a pandemic. The discussion was about something nat- it, uh, natural. If viruses exist, then it's a virus, or a disease exists, it's a disease. That that was the discussion, that that was the threat. This guy's not talking about COVID, he's talking about global warming and global changes. He's talking about 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, like the world is being slowly transformed by, yes, by humans, but he ha- he's missing the entire plot which is not about COVID. It's not about global warming. It's about the US state, the Chinese state, the Russian state. They're gonna smash each other. They're gonna come to a giant collision because the world does not run by order. It runs on anarchy. It runs on the, on the fight for deadly survival of these big powers for who's gonna get, the, who's gonna control the markets and resources, which is explicitly said in the national strategy document and not as explicitly said in the Sino document, but implied in the, in the China document as well. What he's saying doesn't even identify the actual problem we're dealing with. It and it it allows the big powers to get off to get off scot free and use all sorts of language to confuse us. Um, and 
for me, there's nothing, there's nothing in his statement other than, oh yeah, this is the other one, other than passivity. And secondly, he's talking about the ruling class like he's smarter than them. And I want to tell you something I believe. I got a PhD. Jessica's got a PhD. We, I think we're all intelligent. I want to tell you we are all children in terms of running the globe. We don't know shit about how to run the globe. There are experts in it who are doing it. They've been doing it for generations. They have generational knowledge of how to lie to masses of people and how to run the world. They are not stupid at it. They are a thousand times better at that game than we are. So the left has made this mistake over and over again. Look at that stupid ruling class. Look at, and the ones who are stupid are us because we are the infants who don't actually understand the game they're playing. And so that was the other thing that I, that I see in that guy's kind of hubris because we, we have to understand, we don't know how they're, I mean, we know a little bit about what they're doing, but they are experts at what they do. They're not stupid. They're 24 seven thinking about all this stuff. It's their job. They get paid to do it. They have whole institutions. You remember Troll Farms, Eduardo? You asked me, do you believe in Troll Farms? Of course I do. It's called NBC, CNBC, CNN. Massive troll farms across the globe filling us with shit in our brains. And we don't even know it. So this guy thinks they're stupid. And we're the ones getting played. So that also irritates me. I think a lot of people think the ruling class is stupid because... They see, like, the people that we get to see are the puppets. You know, like, we see Joe Biden, who can't string together a fucking sentence. We see Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, like, clearly drunk or (laughs) hopped up on some medicine at 10 a.m. in the morning, right? Like, we don't, the people that we should be most worried about are not household names. Um, And I think that's part of it. I wanted to just add one thing really fast. Um, Just... Uh, with regard to like the whole climate change thing. And I totally agree. Like he wasn't like, he wasn't even talking about climate change (laughs) at all. Like there was no, there was no, nothing underpinning that, like nothing real. Um, But if we somehow by some miraculous um, luck or, or fate or whatever, get out of this whole thing without somebody detonating a nuclear weapon, we're still going to have nuclear energy like that. I increasingly hear liberals uh, and people on both sides of the aisle for sure uh, touting nuclear energy as like the one and only solution to climate. And so it's not just, it's not just like the infrastructure, the mining, all of that shit is totally awful, terrible um, for humans, for everybody, right. For the whole ecosystem, but nuclear energy, I mean, that, it's so fucking dangerous. And they're going to go ahead with that anyway. So, yeah, I don't know. It just it brings us right back to that discussion of, like, this isn't, like, nobody, like, who who's part of this is thinking about what's good for actual people, let alone, like, land or birds. I, I agree with you. Um that you know we're playing checkers you know and they're playing chess and at a high level and you know um and it, it is so scary that's why you know when i hear people especially on the left throwing the term uh conspirational theories very loosely you know i, I don't I, I don't think that's small 
that is massive, right? Because we are trying to find what the fuck the conspiracy is here. Because there is a conspiracy and you will have to take, you know, shots in the dark and assumptions and, and sometimes correct yourself, like you said, Libsyn, in a previous episode, like, you know, sometimes you will, will, will be wrong, you know, but like those, your um, theory hold, right? Like how much of it does it hold together? And um, does it explain the world? And, you know, like, and, you know, of course, like we all can be can guilty of confirmation bias, right? But that's where we have to have conversations about this shit, you know, to see what other people are thinking and maybe come to some sort of, you know, because if you just stay in a room and you make your own fucking story, of course, you know, like, it's true, like, to you. Um, and so, but I, I, I still, you know, even though I, 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 I don't want to be associated with a lot of people who call themselves Marxists nowadays, especially. And even in the past, because thinking back and I'm like, yeah, that shit was fucked up, you know, and like, this is why I think that went wrong. But again, like we, what I'm arguing, you know, I think Lipson too, and I don't know you guys, but like, is that this world is anarchic competition. No one is driving the fucking bus, you know, like not one really, you know, it's just fucking greed and, and, and violence and coercion. And, you know, and, and we don't get a fucking say, you know, that's the first thing that, you know, if we want to really like learn how to play, how to, how, what the game is like, like you got to accept that. Like we don't have a fucking say, how do we get to have a say, you know, and then going back to where you guys were saying about the environment, like I'm starting to divorce myself from that narrative too, because like COVID has taught me a lot. I, I've gone through a lot of fucking personal pain, but it's taught me a lot. A lot of lies I fucking used to swallow myself in, in, in how like basically every time all these fuckers are in the, on the same page, they're lying to us, you know? And, and so on the environment, you know, like we, we started talking, we talked about technology, we talked about war, like, and this is why I'm also a Marxist and like, uh, you know, like I, I love nature and shit because none of these holds without nature without water, without minerals. And guess what? They're going to fucking go and get that shit. The people they're not talking about on these documents, Africa, Latin America, you know, parts of Asia, you know, so the war is going to be for, for that shit too. It's not, you know, technology just, just doesn't happen on a fucking internet. Internet needs electricity, needs water, needs all these natural resources. And so, you know, like, and this is a debate that Eduardo and I have had in, a, you know, on environmental topics. It's like, I am for nature. You know, fighting against our ruling class is being for nature. Because, like, I, I even, same thing with, with the COVID situation. Like, I respect what people are doing. People have different angles on where the battle should be fought. But for me, it's like, unless we go for the throat of this system, legislation and appealing to fucking local, uh, you know, politicians, that's just the delay of the game. You know, if you ever watch sports, you know, and, 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 and I don't know, like, I wish I had better answers as to how, but like, first of all, we have to realize what Lipson said. We're fucking little children playing with these fuckers. And we, we gotta learn their fucking game, you know, in order to find different answers. Because that's what I see, like, you know, in, in Again, I have to be honest with myself. I have to analyze, am I like just 
justifying my frame of the world, but look at what's happening. We predicted a lot of shit. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that I'm right. I, I want to be wrong because I don't want that fucking future for us. I want to be wrong, but fucking COVID vaccines, they came. They're not gone. They, they'll come back. Don't worry about it because this is about data. You know, the partition of the world happening right now, boldly, the bold challenges to power and the, the order of things, the destruction of the liberal dem democracy facade. You know, like we're, we're entering a new world order right now, a new, uh, the way things are done. And so where do we fit in, in, in that context? You know, when, you know, people rule our lives. And, and so again, it goes back to me, to us uprising, you know, collectively and saying, fuck you, we're not playing your games, your rules. We're doing our, our shit. Because like, again, it, it's just a fucking insane and scary thing. And, you, we can't pretend to like fucking hide our, our heads under the sand, you know, and, and, you know, whilst these fuckers who think they're driving the bus, you know, uh, drive us over a cliff. I guess, well, first I should mention, I forgot to mention who that was because I should have said who that was at first. So that was, just to be clear, that was Alfred McCoy, the author and professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I personally do, I am an environmentalist, but I, I'm the way that I've now changed. I've changed over how I see we should uh, view uh, whatever we think. However, uh, climate change is being, um, I, you know, I have my doubts, but since you've shared with us in one episode, Andy, we can post in the link below that climate change is, is something that is being, there's a climate crisis because of CO2. I, I'm not going to argue on that front, but we both agreed in that episode and that there is environmental destruction and it's uh, to what level I'm not sure but there is a lot of pollution a lot of contamination there's a lot of uh, contaminants in our body today 90% of uh, chemicals that have been discovered uh, our body has a lot of things there's a lot of things that are going on clearly there's something happening how uh, uh, this environmental catastrophe is being weaponized and politicized in order for it to be used against us is now how I see COVID has been used, right? So I've, I've learned over this past two years that, that environment, the environment um, can, uh, climate change, that phrase, the environmental crisis that is, is, is happening can be now used against us. So that is what I'm afraid of. So my, my way of dealing with the way that um, uh, in the environmental crisis is not going to be, uh, I'm going to go against the, the lockdowns. I'm going to go against any sort of uh, uh, politicians trying to capitalize on this issue. And that's where my stance is. Um, I threw that in the, 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 this Alfred McQuay professor because Whatever I don't know, I was thinking I was. I think I was just trying to figure out. So there might be plagues, or right, there might be a war. Maybe it's climate change. I'm not sure. But the tectonic shifts are going to happen in one way or another through these major events. I don't know. If maybe it might be climate change. It might be. It just might be. It may not be. Whatever it is, I think we saw in the agreements in this tectonic shift that there is going to be in the technology area, as Kenny was alluding to, that there, that, that Russia and China are ready to strengthen the cooperation um, on artificial intelligence and information security. And we are a country, we're a contribution to that, right? With all of this um, um, 
COVID narrative on shifting from, you know, from more paper to more um, data, more, um, more reliance on technology, we are a contribution to that shift because they are one of the leaders. I mean, China is one of the leaders on um, collecting information and data on their people. They have a credit system. And so if we think that's just China, we've actually contributed to that way of, and uh, that way of living, that, that, that way of society, the 1984 Orwellian society that we keep fearing, we keep talking about, we keep alluding to. And so uh, if this tectonic shift is happening, then I imagine China's influence will be so great that it will affect our culture, our society, our way of living here. Because if wherever the currency is moving towards, whether we, as Kenny showed us in the episode, whether it be the British pound, and first it was a Spanish um, currency, and then it was a British pound, and then the U and then US dollar, right? And now it's the yuan. I think that's how you pronounce. Sorry. Um, then. And now it's backed by gas, right? And we're seeing these transactions by Saudi Arabia and, and China. Then, um, of course, what do we expect? I mean, TikTok is, it came out of China and it's one of the biggest influence that we have here in the USA. So I imagine, again, in the next 10, 20 years, we are going to be overtaken by more influence um, that's happening there. So whatever is happening there is happening is going to happen here and we should be instead fighting we should be instead resisting information security and all of this stupid you know propaganda crap about um what's disinformation and what we should be start controlling and that's how i see us being a part of it's more of a continuation of other episodes that we've discussed this i uh, see how important it is for us to keep our voices and that's a big shift for me <laughs> speaking of shift, right um, from how I used to think before, but COVID has really changed me on that those positions. So I think we should be fighting on all fronts, and we should be here at home resisting disinformation campaigns, resisting information security, resisting artificial intelligence, resisting all of that in our society here. Uh, and it's crazy to think that oh well, it's not going to happen. It's that's something that China does no it's their influence is going to get so great you know and i'm i'm really hoping that when we have alice uh, you know alison here for discussion on mexico and the discussion on what's happening there I'm, i'd like to know what's happening in the background that i'm maybe not privy of myself <clears throat> uh I, one thing i was going to add was just on the on the discussion of um oil and the petrodollar like we talked a bit about saudi arabia throughout but i just wanted to read this really short is from Richie Medhurst from today, I think, um, more about the Russian end of things. So he says, Russia is now demanding that Europe pay for gas in rubles. Europe gets 40% of its gas from Russia. That's 200 to 800 million euros per day. Putin is basically saying, you want to play sanctions, either pay up in rubles or freeze. This rule applies to all unfriendly nations. Russia published a list of 48 unfriendly states a few weeks ago, which includes the EU, US, Japan, Switzerland, and Norway. These are generally countries that have sanctioned Russia in the last weeks. Putin, quote, now everyone in the world knows that obligations in dollars can be defaulted. It doesn't make sense to deliver our goods to the EU or US and receive payments in dollars or euros. Following Putin's announcement, the ruble is now at its strongest point against the dollar and euro since March 2nd. 
after plummeting due to sweeping US-EU sanctions. And benchmark European gas prices rose as much as 20% or 21% in Amsterdam. Remember, the US is begging Maduro for oil. It wants the nuclear deal back to get Iranian oil on the market. And then, like we've talked about, Saudis are considering selling oil to China in UN, not USD. India bought Russian oil in rupees. Um, anyway, what what I was going to ask, and, and maybe like, I don't know, some of like Menhurst's framing, I think would be kind of in line with this. But like, what do you what do you guys say to people who argue that the U.S. empire is the most evil, destructive force on the planet, and therefore, it, like, any sort of um, dethroning of that empire, even if it's by mobsters or globalists or whatever, it's still, like, a a good thing, relatively speaking. And I'm not saying that's not my opinion. I, it's not. I, I You're not going to see me like cheering for states. But like, I think that's the argument that a lot of um, people are kind of who, you know, who are at least closer to us on the on the political spectrum. So what would you say to that, Kenny? <laughs> for me, like that reminds me of the lesser of the two evils argument you know like in our election system here like no like again Lipson has stated that we don't win the working class doesn't win you know we are pieces in their board and you know just like the Ukrainian people were discardable uh, tools in this game because definitely like the Russians don't give a fuck but the West doesn't give a fuck about them you know, because they knew they push, you know, this situation to in their strategic thing. So we don't win. Like, I don't I don't want to be ruled by China. Fuck that. I don't want to be ruled by Russians. Fuck that. But I don't want to be ruled by the fuckers that are ruling me right now. You know, and, and so but again, we can't do much about China or Russia. Like, really, we have to focus on our ruling class who's like, you know, in their role in this fucking game uh, in no, like, I don't want to be ruled by them. And, like, I don't, you know, the, the dethroning or whatever, like, I would say that's, like, it's going to take a massive fucking bellic event in the world. And, in, in, in like, I guess to go back to that whole uh, talk of how we transition from different empires, right? There's always a massive display of violence to dethrone an empire and displays the latest technologies. That's how I see it. So, and, and we're at a, at, a, at a point where, like, our technology is so advanced and so destructive that how can you, how can you see that someone wins in this one? You know, like, and I, I, I do think that the third one would be a fucking, like, final blow to whatever the fuck organized civilization, I guess, is the best term I can think of. Um, like, I don't, like, I'm not rooting for China or Russia or the U.S., like fuck them all like you know and like my only hope is that like we do our part to take on our rulers so maybe the working class in those countries see what we did you know in, in the necessity of that um but that, that's i guess that's my only answer i i very much agree with what eduardo is saying which i jessica i think is the spirit you're putting in i you are not with any state right um and i so i agree with that framing but i i'll you mean I'll, can but Kenny, yeah, sorry, Kenny um, was saying, um, 
that I think Jessica would agree with when she says, I'm not for any state. But I, I want to put a fine point on it and use the Russian Revolution as an example. And Lenin, and at a time when I think the Bolshevik Party was doing the kinds of things that I think we will need to do as war emerges, which is called revolutionary defeatism. There were Bolsheviks who were in the Russian army who refused to fight and would only be stationed in Petrograd. And they were, and this was at a time when Russia was fighting a war with Germany. And those Bolsheviks had the point of like, no, we want our side to lose. We're for our side losing because our biggest, we don't trust the German, German rulers or the US rulers or the French rulers, but our problem is these Russian rulers. They're the ones who are our biggest problem. So we are going to turn their drive for imperial war into a civil war that will bring down this government and risk our side, quote, losing in that war. It was called revolutionary defeatism. And I actually believe that. I believe what we're going to have to do is, is play this very dangerous game in the, the, the capitalist class is gonna be playing a dangerous nuclear war game. And in the context of the US losing, it's gonna create opportunities for the US workers to take down its own government. And, they're gonna be, and we're gonna be told that we are traitors for that. And we're gonna have to say, yes, we are. We want to defeat our own government in this. We want to take it down in the face of our government facing its giant biggest crisis. Revolutionaries have to be prepared to say, yes, we are, we are traitors to this country. We want to take its government down. We're prepared to lose this war because we think everyone loses if we can carry on with this war. And what happened when the, the Bolsheviks were successful, that was the way that Russia was taken out of the, out, off the board in the war. And what, what happened was, though, that Germany said, okay, I'm sweeping into Ukraine and taking it. And they did. And Russia had to deal. It's like, because there were some revolutionaries said, oh, let's fight the war. It's like, no, we're not fighting other workers. You get to take Ukraine. Revolutionary defeatism. We're out. They lost that, they lost that notion a few years later when they went into Poland and tried to take it over and revolutionize the workers by, by you know, bringing revolutionary workers with guns into Poland. And they got smashed. That's not the way to do it. You have to be... I wouldn't call what that what I'm describing pacifism. I'd saying you make war with your own ruling class and 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 create the defeat of your own country in a war by essentially making a socialist revolution happen inside of it. So that would be my tilt to it, I guess. I just wanted to add that that's why I see that it's so important for the US to garner support for Ukraine. You know, and, and to, to so that everyone is on the U.S. side when they do take action. And, right. uh -huh. and I want to, and this is why I didn't realize this at the time, how meaningful it was when, when this 2018 document came out and said, we're going away from the war on terror to this war on Russia and China. You know, we're going to move away from war on terror language. I didn't realize that that was also a problem for the United States. They might have realized it, but I didn't realize it because the war on terror with 9-11 and the Twin Towers coming down, which is probably an inside job, and most people believe it's an inside job, and at this point, I'm prepared to believe that. That, no one was able to say, oh, we're not with the U.S., because everyone had to get behind the United States. China was, China was probably dying, going like, these motherfuckers, we've got to say we're like for them. Russia was probably dying, going, we've got to act like we're for these people, you know, when they knew they all had the knives out for each other, but everyone had to act like we're all in solidarity with the United States, and the United States took it and said, here we go. War on terror, everyone's with us. Are you a terrorist or are you with us? But when the US left the war on terror, 
it opened up it opened them up to this new language that's in this sino russia document which is there's no war on terror we're we're they're declaring a war on us authoritarianism you know and that's interesting to me I want to comment on that real quick too. This is also this language is present in the document of the two sides, Russia and China. They also, just like the U.S., leave the door open for terrorism because terrorism is very flexible, right? And terrorism is defined by the people who are the police of the world. Interesting stuff. Also, something fast. I was just thinking, you know, there were people activists on top of uh, the one of the Raytheon buildings the other day and also like I think blockading their parking facility or something um, not enough but you know I think that's an example of like yes the US Empire and all the all its allies and you know different arms must be dethroned but like you both are saying, Andy and Kenny, it's our job to dethrone it, right? Like we can't be, you know, as much as like when, especially reading these together, right? Like there, for me, there is a, a real sense of like, well, any critique of this joint agreement coming from like uh, an American, right, has no leg to stand on whatsoever, even if the critique is true. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not gonna, you know, what is to be gained by villainizing, you know, big bad Putin or China, like whoever the villain of the day is, right? Um, even if they are awful, um, it's it's really our job, like, to take care of our own government and tear it down. That's why I find it so funny when you, when I guess when I do glance at like mainstream media and one angle that is taken to analyze quote-unquote uh, this moment is focuses on Putin the evil Putin with the childhood problems Putin with you know like the ideological like you know in historical duty to reinstitute re the you know Russia and, and and they completely ignore or skip the whole like you know, power dynamics happening in the world. And so their analysis is focusing on a person just like it was with Trump, right? Like he's one person, you know, um, he's one evil, Kim Jong-un, you know, like this irrational evil people, right? Like as if we're watching a fucking 1980s Hollywood movie. Um, and, and it's, and, but, it, but it works, you know, like, because people do pick sides, you know, in like, it's an emotional appeal, it's, it's emotional manipulation. Um, so, so we can, you know, rally behind Ukraine and the U.S. as the, the you know, the people that bring democracy and order and law and order, you know, like all that bullshit. Um, but in reality, there's no, there's very few actual intelligent, you know, developed arguments on what's happening. Other than that, is purely emotional manipulation, at least from my angle. Yeah, and, and Zelensky too, right? Like P Putin's like a freaking, like you said, 1980s James Bond villain. <laughs> and then they're holding up Zelensky like he's a, the golden boy. And I'm hearing, you know, middle-aged women in my town talking about how sexy he is. And it's just like, oh, it's just a show. Like it's just a fucking theater show. They said the same thing about Donald Rumsfeld. Do you remember that? 
Oh, did they? Oh, uh, Rumsfeld was, <laughs> was a sex symbol for a while. He was so he was such a badass around Iraq War. Oh my God, disgusting. Man. But I mean, that's the thing, though. Again, it's like you know, you, I think of a person wearing a sock puppet. Puppet, you know, you have one hand and one hand here, and like we, we even we get involved in wondering what the what's coming out of this sock's mouth and what's coming out of this sock's mouth. And can you believe they said that? And you, or even trying to assess it when there's a hand behind that we never get to see. And there's a whole institution and there's a whole class behind it that we often don't really get to, we, we don't get to talk about what's really going on there. Um, we spend our time with these figures and, and yet we are claiming that we, that they're the dummies, <laughs> you know, the weird shit that's coming out of the mouth of the Muppet that we actually pay attention to. We lay claim to saying, what are those idiots doing as we think that that show is, is somehow showing us what's really going on. And that is where you need, that's where it's, where it takes conspiracy. Cause it, because capitalism is an organized conspiracy. They're not going to tell you the truth about how this stuff works. And William Casey, that CIA guy from 1980, said, if we can make sure that everything, everything the U.S. people believe is a lie, then we're doing our job. Like, Because they, they're afraid of, of us getting any piece of truth. Everything we believe has to be a lie in their mind. That's pretty complete if you, get, if, if, if you ask me. That's why it's so hard to figure out what the hell is going on in Ukraine. Because I just assume that 98% of what I'm seeing, even from independent media, yeah. is lies. Like, or it's misinformed. Right. And even, like, like you were saying, like, what we're being shown, but also, like, the history. You know? I mean, I, I, looking back, like, I just didn't get anything in my education. Yeah. You know? I went to nice schools and whatever. Progressive teachers and I feel like I'm just having to make up for lost time like in adulthood because we're not taught any anything yeah and I I share with you the notion of okay once I accept that it's all a lie that doesn't then tell me what the truth is right well, that is a challenge and that is where it requires discussion and and we need a lot of people to be in the on a lot of people who care about the future of the world who are prepared to pretty much give up and who are prepared to abandon all the things we're being forced into abandon data collection, abandon, abandon, you know, this work fourth industrial revolution, whatever's being forced on us, we have to abandon all of that and, and, and have a discussion amongst ourselves about what do we think is going on? Um, and I think we need yeah. journalists there, you know, like people on the ground, like whether it's this or something else, because I think that, like just with the censorship of the media and all of that being so centralized and Assange still being locked up. He got married today, like in a fucking prison. But I, I guess I'm speaking of it again. More, and I don't I keep on talking about these, what are semi mystical indigenous, but I'm just talking about collective knowledge. I'm not even talking about a journalist per se, but just the notion that people who are trying to figure out, truly trying to figure out what is truly going on, getting together and discussing, I believe in that. What that will produce, I believe in that. And I don't know what that is, but that's what I believe in. And I think this show speaks to that. Like I, I, you know, I, I have a degree of understanding. I, I, there's a lot of blind spots. Like I couldn't have put this picture of Ukraine 
when it first started, you know, it would have been a lie. You know, like I think we even were like taking stabs at it right in the first episode. Uh, but it's it's taking conversations and events, you know, you know, happening to get a better picture of what's happening. Same with COVID. You know, like at the beginning, we we were kind of taking, we took that position first, like, no, like this shit is like, and then at, at a moment I was freaking out, you know, like I, it still won me up and, and then I came back to it. I'm like, no, fuck that, like bullshit. But again, it takes time because we are, we are again playing checkers, you know, and trying to figure out how to play, uh, you know, chess. Uh, that's how, that's a metaphor I use. And, and so... Again, that's why it's again the importance of this show to me is that that I've been able to talk to people from a bunch of walks of life from different angles. I, I don't agree with everyone, but a lot of perspectives have informed how I you know analyze things, right? And and I think that is true knowledge, you know, not going to a fucking institution to be indoctrinated with bullshit. Um, and um, like true knowledge is conversation, disagreeing, fighting sometimes. <laughs> you know, like we've done in this show and, and then, you know, but realizing that, you know, we we're pointing in the same direction and trying to figure out a similar thing. Cause I do think there are fucking lines where you, you know, like you're not even in the same ballpark with some people. Right. So and you, that will be important to, to distinguish you because you can't dedicate all your energy to some shit that is just like, you know, like there is no traction there. Like, and, and so yeah, collective knowledge. I agree with you, Lipson. Um, and at some point, I guess in the future, we'll also be having conversations with people in other struggles and how they're dealing with their bullshit. But uh, for now, our task is to, you know, not just to resist, is to find a way to fight back, <laughs> you know, because uh, just holding the roof is fucking exhausting as we've, you know, experienced. I wanted to just comment on maybe some of the you know we're having this discussion and that's great and but i've been trying to feel my way around some of the liberal circles progressive circle friends that i have i think they're just my friends and they have their opinions and so i, I think for me just listening to what they are saying is giving me after these conversations and this topic now i feel i can share with them a different perspective in those circles when i Think of sanctions, for example, it comes up a lot and how they are a big proponent of sanctions. And they think that that's the way to um, to to fight against uh, Putin, against Russia and what's happening in the Ukraine. And I think that after the, today's topic, right, that sanctions are actually pushing us further into this uh, tectonic shift of the, 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 the world power that is shifting now to over to Eurasia, you know, because um, I think sanctions are just motivating China and Russia saying, you know what, we're too closely tied to them and this is why we're getting affected. We're going to do our, we're our way now, you know, and UN is going actually to be the most globalized currency. It's going to, because globalization is being weaponized and used against us. And so that's what sanctions is doing. This is what we're pushing more further of that. It's not actually de-escalating. It's not actually stopping them. It's making them further get stronger and realizing they've depended on the USA too long, maybe, and they need to start doing it their way and be them, be them the, cent the, cent the center powers. And the other comments that I've also heard is about how much Ukraine, um, they support uh, independization or, or, or free Ukraine. 
And it's if that's the case, then you would also be a proponent or a supporter of freeing Puerto Rico, for example, right? Then you would say, okay, fine. Then let's let go of Puerto Rico as well. Let's let go of Western Sahara that is being controlled by Morocco, right? Um, and so why aren't we speaking about that, right? And, and that's not in the conversation. And then I guess the other thing I also hear is about the refugees and the refugee crisis. And that to me is also disturbing because a lot of people who think that, oh, well, we should be supporting refugees weren't very, maybe not so much live leftists or go Maybe this is something we need to discuss even amongst our friends who are amongst like, who are think alike around COVID, but they might be um, more lenient of right wing um, um, uh, politics. And that they think that immigration isn't, you know, like something that we, we may not be in agreement in immigration, but if they talking about Ukrainian refugees, you know, um, I think we should think about refugees in general, the global South as well, right? I mean, not just these refugees in the Ukraine are just as equal, I think, as people in Africa and from people from Latin America who are coming over, we should be giving everyone the show, or actually we should have a borderless uh, we should uh, no border stance, and that's how I think of this when I'm thinking about commentary from um, circles that I'm I'm in, um, whether it be online or offline. And I listen to friends and, and community. Don't know if anyone wants to make a comment, but that's that's it for me. Pretty much wiped out <laughs> for tonight. Well, I think it's They're good. mostly white refugees, though, right? Mm. And also largely unvaccinated, interestingly, but oh. we don't talk about that. <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> I, I would just say, Eduardo, I think it's it's good that you have connections. Because um, I'm not, at this point, I'm not talking with any liberals about this. Like, I, And it's just, that's just where I'm at, you know? And that's why you do need a group of people to be doing stuff like this. Because there are people who I'll talk to, but they're going to be at the farmer's market when we're when we're um, tabling um, or there'll be people in the workers and students for choice, you know, and we'll discuss it with those folks. And Brandy and I am with you all. Um, I, cause currently I, we don't have a trucker convoy. I'm not in, there's not a working class struggle that I'm a part of that's happening around me um, to be able to talk about this in the context of um, because if, if we were, if we, if there was working class action against some section of capital here, we'd have to say that that, that our struggle is not just against capital here, but against capital's intentions of using Ukraine as a imperial, you know, plaything. I would, at least that's what I would be saying, you know, in that kind of fight, but I'm not in that fight. So currently it's, it's about trying to keep my head on straight, trying to be honest about what I think I see. I was really glad that I said what I said about Ukraine way back when, because I feel like it helped me in making a prediction that was really wrong. It helped me say, okay, well, what, what was, what were the reasons I thought that so I could rethink this situation. And so for me right now, it's about keeping a community of people who I trust continue and stay in connection with and discussion with. I know like Jake and I don't agree on NWO, but I'm pushing him on NWO right now, but I'm not, you know, he can do what he's going to do. And he's going to push back. And I want to stay in that place of discussion with him because I trust him as a comrade in the struggle against an overall state. Um, so those are the folks who I'm, I'm interested in talking with. Uh, and I'm certainly not, Eduardo, in saying that you shouldn't talk. I think all of us have our own 
architecture around us that we can have these discussions. But struggle-wise, it's it's more of an idea of struggle than the than real than real struggle, you know. And maybe if my school got pushed around a vaccine and we did have to do a civil disobedience, that might produce an opportunity. But right now, it's kind of keep it's like I'm like Jessica, I keep my head down, don't say too much most of the time. And I try to consider where I'm going to say something um, uh, because there needs to be a point for me as a, other than just creating a, another conflict, another source of, of alienation with somebody who I don't need to, I don't need that right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm still tied to former campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> they're not friends, friends. They're just people that we work together with that love nothing. And, some the you know living in san francisco you just once i'm online and then once i see them on the street or i see them organizing then and they call me they ask me to join i'm just i don't want to do anything with them anymore so and then that's a conversation started why not why don't you want to vote or why like yesterday no right so then i have conversations with folks that i used to be a part of their religion <laughs> <We're> still... <laughs> all right let's full circle <laughs> I'm just gonna start selling bunkers. <laughs> Sorry, the good thing with bunkers is if we have internet, we can still socialize. <laughs> right now, yeah, they have to be in a physical space for that. Right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. What's left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, or Telegram, and you can find any of that. And Rumble. Rumble. Thank you. And Rumble. I'll put that down. Um, you can find any of that in the episode notes uh, to our blog. Again, read it. If you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca, the co-host Jessica, Kenny Sepeda, and Andy Lipson. Thank you all very much. See you all next time. Ciao. And I was just glad that we're all back again. <laughs> yes. Okay.